Yeah, right. Where, where's Elaine? Elaine's my agent. So I am Nate Amerson, and I am really grateful and I'm really humbled uh, to have the opportunity to speak this morning. When Anthony asked me to um, jump in on this section of the Exodus series, that Exodus journey that we've been on, um, he gave me eight huge chapters of scripture uh, and basically said, just go for it. Uh, so we're going to read all eight of those chapters. To <laughs> no, we're not. We're not going to read all eight of those chapters this morning. Um, but just a reminder from where we were at last week, Anthony was emphasizing where they, the people of Israel were in their journey at the mountain. Um, and they're all kind of like camped out at the base of the mountain, right? And we see Moses kind of goes up and down the mountain and receives laws from God and receives some different messages, brings them down to the people and they talk. It seems like over the course of these chapters that he kind of goes up and down the mountain a couple of times. Um, and so Anthony emphasized last week, so this is just to catch us up sort of on where we're at in this series and particularly with the people of Israel and where they're at in this particular time. What Anthony was talking about last week, I just want to bring up one reminder slide so that then we can jump into the section of Exodus that we're going to be discussing today. So Anthony talked specifically about the purpose of the law. Last week, Anthony talked about Moses receiving the law, um, not just the whole list of the 613 dietary and customary and social and religious laws that uh, he receives from God at the time, but also literally receives physical hard copy, the hardest copy that you can get, literally stone tablets written with the hand of God. Moses receives the law from God, and we talked about the Ten Commandments. So when we are looking at the four purposes of the law, really brings this out from Galatians 3.19, where Paul, years and years and years, you know, centuries later, from the time of the receiving of the law, but Paul, a Pharisee who is extremely well-educated, very, very well-versed in the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament, very, very well-versed in the law, has this amazing, miraculous encounter with God, changes his name, changes the whole direction of his life. He's no longer a Pharisee. He's no longer persecuting the Christian church, but instead he becomes an advocate, the strongest advocate for the Christian church in the first century. Goes on to write half the New Testament. So Paul's speaking about the law in Galatians 3.19. says, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So, again, what Anthony talked about, the four purposes of the law, especially drawn from uh, some of Paul's writings in the New Testament, first is to provide a sacrificial system to deal temporarily with transgressions. And we'll talk a little bit more specifically about this today, this aspect of the sacrificial system and how that met the laws that God had put in place. But it was only for a time. It wasn't God's permanent plan for his people to operate under the sacrificial law and the sacrificial system. Second, to teach people more clearly what God requires and thereby to restrain transgressions. So on one hand, the sacrificial system to make amends for our sins and transgressions or the people's at the time. Second, to establish the standard 
to teach people the right way to live and restrain them from departing from the law, to restrain transgressions. Third, to show that transgressions violated an explicit written law. So it's one thing to say, this is the standard, and then you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, forget about it, go about your daily life, right? But I don't know if any of you guys have told your kids, you got to be home by 10 o'clock, right? Whatever, whatever the standard is, right? And then 10 o'clock comes and goes, uh, and 10.30, and they're finally, like, coming in, and you're like, what happened to 10 o'clock? We talked about this, right? They're like, oh, yeah, I forgot, you know, we were just uh, having fun, whatever. Um, that's, that's my teenager's voice. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, that's how my kids still all sound in my head. So, <laughs> um, but it wasn't written. You only talked about it, right? You only said, this is the standard, just 10 o'clock. But if you write it down on the calendar or on the fridge, then you can say, see, we didn't just talk about it. It's written down. So that's what God did was he established the explicit written law. And then finally, the fourth purpose of the law, to reveal people's need for a savior. And we'll talk more about that as well as Anthony did last week. So jumping into the portion of scripture that we're going to be looking at specifically today, like I said, we're not going to read eight chapters, but we're definitely going to hit some highlights and some key aspects of the law uh, without necessarily hitting on all. It's 613, right? Isn't that the, the number of, if you like itemize them out, the total number of laws that God gives. So we're not going to necessarily hit on all of these. But initially, in Exodus chapter 23, when Moses is receiving the law and the people are at the base of Mount Sinai, um, God initially establishes one really important aspect of worship, of community, of life, and that is as the people are preparing to go into the promised land, the land itself becomes a key point of emphasis that God brings to the people. The land is the promise, the land is the inheritance, and the land is where they're going to live, it's where they're going to have their children in multiple, multiple generations, God's going to raise up kings and judges and rulers over the land. And the land is really um, intimately involved with the life of the people. So you have to remember, none of these folks were going to Safeway and getting their organic chicken to have for dinner, right? You got to remember, agrarian societies are tied to the land. And the land is the promise and the inheritance for the people is something that God is emphasizing in this particular aspect. Now, not only that, but God right from the beginning establishes a standard of how you're going to live with the land. What exactly that means. So right off the bat, he says here in Exodus 23 and verse 10, for six years you will sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you'll let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. All right, so God says every aspect, so not just farming wheat or grain or whatever it is, but every aspect of the agrarian society, what they glean from the land from all their harvests, to include uh, grapes and olives, right, which are key, you know, really key aspects uh, for the community, and, and we see later on they become part of the religious worship as well. So in all aspects of farming, 
you work the land for six years, and then the seventh year, you let it rest. Um, I grew up on a farm. It wasn't, uh, it certainly wasn't quite this type of farm, because we had, you know, tractors and modern technology, and we're able to do a lot more work in a day than these folks working by hand were able to do in a day. But my dad, as a farmer, showed how even today, this is still a viable principle of farming, and that you actually get the most yield out of your land if you don't just farm it constantly year after year after year after year. If you let it rest, if you let it set, and smart farmers do this thing called crop rotation. So if you have 100 acres, they'll plant whatever, 90 of those acres or 80 of those acres, and then they'll always have one section that's not growing anything. And then the next year, they rotate that section, rotate that section, rotate that section, so that there's always one part of the land that's not growing something, and it's resting. Because what you can do is you can actually sap all of the energy out of the soil so that your crops begin to yield less and less and less over time. So even today, we see this as a scientific principle of farming. God establishes it not only for that fact, but to emphasize the Sabbath, to emphasize the Sabbath. So God himself, in creation, the story is told, that God himself worked to create for six days, and on the seventh day of creation, he rested. And God establishes that seventh day of rest as a principle for us and for his people. And we see that that Sabbath rest extends to even to the land and to how they go about the farming. Then additionally, he goes on to reestablish, and this principle has already been established. This is not new um, for the people of Israel, but he reemphasizes, six days shall you do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant women and the alien may be refreshed. So that, that means people who are from foreign countries or foreign areas that are living in the land with the people. That's who the alien is. So the Sabbath rest extends to the land, and it extends to the very people themselves, how they live and work. Um, and over time, especially in what's called the post-exilic period, which is about the 400-ish years before the year zero or, or the first century when Christ came, um, this concept of not working on the Sabbath became really, really expanded uh, into a lot of sort of really weird uh, and very minor uh, laws that were added that the, the rabbis of that time period tried to really, really define exactly what work was so that, and I don't know exactly what this is because I'm, I'm not fully versed on like the Talmud and the Midrash, that was the writings of the time, but really, really complicated things like you can put food in the oven, but you can't light a fire. Like if you light a fire, that's working. But if you just put food in the oven, that's already warm. So they had to keep the oven warm from the day before. You can walk, it was something like 100 steps. If you walk more than 100 steps on the Sabbath, you're working. And there was just a bunch of like these kind of like really, really, you know, sort of ticky-tack laws that were added on to this concept just because it became a real point of emphasis for the Hebrew people of the time. And, and they went a little bit too far with it because it wasn't exactly what God was intending was to be that uh, legalistic and just, you know, nitpicky about it. But the concept is rest. And the concept of rest is tied in with worship. 
so that when you rest on the seventh day, that's also the day that you appear before the Lord and you worship. So the seventh day of rest for the land, the seventh day of rest for the people to establish God's principles in that way and the fact that it's tied in to worship because you worship on the seventh day. So in addition to establishing the principles of how you go about farming, how you go about raising your grapes, how you go about harvesting your olives, um, and how all that's tied to the land and to rest, God at this point establishes three times during the year when festivals and feasts are to take place for the people of Israel. And later we know that additional festivals, additional feasts were added to the Jewish religious calendar. Um, but at this time, God establishes three. The first is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Passover. And this, of course, we remember from this series and from various things that we've talked about, that the Passover was the time when um, God ultimately delivered his final judgment against the Egyptians when the people were still in slavery and took the firstborn of all of the Egyptian families. But for the people of Israel, if they had taken the lamb and done as they were instructed and put the blood of the lamb on the door lintels of their, of their house, the angel of death passed by those houses or passed over them and took it, the Egyptian families. So that's a reminder back to when the people were released from captivity, from their slavery in Egypt. That's when the concept of the Passover was established. And this is where God establishes that as part of the ritual calendar for their year. And it becomes part of the Jewish community um, and like the, the year-long system of worship that God is establishing at this time. So second is the Feast of Harvest at first harvest. Okay, so... Various crops are harvested at different times, but generally speaking, there's like sort of an early harvest, and this is particularly for crops that are grown in the ground. Um, there's usually like a late spring type harvest, and then there's like, they'll grow again throughout the rest of the growing season, and there will be an end of the year harvest. So God establishes a festival or a feast to recognize the feast of the first harvest, and that is really when um, the people are gathering in Finally, after a long winter of having lived on what they grew last year, they might be starting to run low. They might be starting to run out of food a little bit because it's been several months since the last harvest. Now they finally have that opportunity for the first harvest, and God sets apart that time as a special opportunity for the people to remember him. So the festival of the Feast of the Passover, and the Feast of the First Harvest, and then finally what's called the Feast of Gathering, the Feast of Gathering, and that is basically an, another harvest feast, but the one at the end of the season. And at the end of the season is where you get all of your crops. So the first one, you might only get crops that are grown in the ground, but at the end of the season, you get all of the vineyard and olives and anything else that, that you're growing. That's your time to harvest everything, set it aside for the winter when not much is going to be growing. And God establishes that opportunity as another time for the people to set aside time it always falls on the Sabbath, so it's in fitting with the concept of the work six days, celebrate or have a feast on the seventh day. So the festivals always fell on the Sabbath and was an opportunity to remember God at the end of the season when you're bringing in all of the gathering. 
So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or the Feast of Passover, is a reminder of God's deliverance. Remember, this is when the next day they were allowed to leave Egypt, the slavery and bondage that they'd been in for hundreds of years. So the Feast of the Passover is a reminder of God's deliverance. The Feast of the Harvest, the first harvest, is a reminder of God's provision. God has provided the land, and the land has provided for you. And we take the time to worship. We take the time for the harvest. We take the time for the Feast of the Harvest. And then finally, the Feast of Gathering at the end of the season is a reminder of God's providence. Because God, in his providence, has established the seasons and the cycle of harvest and has provided for you and your family to have food through the winter into the next time when you're planting and harvesting the next year. So a reminder of God's providence. So in these ways, we see that God, from the very beginning, is establishing the community, um, a calendar, the, a week of work, or six days of work and one of rest. Um, and then ultimately, what it says is, this is back in Exodus 23 and uh, verse 14 this time. Uh, this is where he lays out the law. So three times in the year, you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall keep the feast of the harvest and of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year shall all of your males appear before God. So this is not just a day off. It's not just a feast. It's not just to party. It's not just to have a family reunion or whatever it is that you do on holidays and on feast days, but it's to appear before God. So the Sabbath is set aside as a day of rest and worship. Likewise, the days of the feasts are set aside that all your males shall appear before God. So all of the heads of household are presenting themselves before God during the time when they're having these feasts and festivals. And God establishes three opportunities throughout the year to set aside the time to do exactly that. So keep feasts in your mind, and we're going to transition into a couple of other things that God is establishing as standards and as laws for the people of Israel and for the community. But we're going to come back to feasts, so remember that. In Exodus chapter 25, God begins to give a series, and this goes on for like three chapters. So it is very, very explicit, very, very detailed instructions about how to build the place of worship where the people are going to worship. Now remember, up until this time, they've been nomads. They've been wanderers. God has led them, like we saw in the song today, God has led them with fire. God has led them with the pillar of cloud in the daytime. So God's presence has been with them, but hasn't had a permanent place where the people can make that location the center of their worship. And so God begins to give very in detailed instructions about how to build this location that the people of Israel are going to make the center of their worship, the center of their community, and ultimately how that worship spans throughout the year like we were already talking about. So he begins not with actually the instructions for what later became called the tabernacle, which is like sort of a series of tents that God gave the instructions that would be where the people come to worship. He starts with a box. He says, you got to build a box. And the box is made of wood, and it's got very specific dimensions. And it's covered inside with gold, and it's covered outside with gold. And it's designed with rings that you put a pole through. It's designed to be carried on your shoulders by the priests. 
And on top of the box goes a big, heavy gold lid that has two cherubims on top of it that are made of solid gold. And that becomes God's location. God's location and God's presence becomes associated with the box. This is, we know now, called the Ark of the Covenant, right? So it's a reminder of the covenant that God has made with his people. It's a reminder of the promise of the land. And it becomes the literal physical location where the presence of God himself rests. And ultimately, they sort of will build this place of worship around that specific location because God himself says that his presence, his actual divine presence on earth will rest on the box, will rest on the Ark of the Covenant. So that's what he starts with. We talked about the cherubim. They're called the cherubim of atonement. So these are like golden angels that are facing each other and are on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And they are a reminder of the atonement. So God's presence is so holy that nobody can approach it. Remember, all the people said to Moses, we're afraid to go up on the mountain, you go, right? That's because of God's presence. Moses himself goes out there and God says, you can't even look over here because you're going to die. So however exactly that conversation took place on top of the mountain, we don't know. But God's presence is so holy and so powerful that in this place, we're reminded that it requires atonement for people to even come into the presence of God. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later because the concept of atonement is what drives the sacrificial system that God is putting in place in these next few chapters. Then he gives very detailed instructions again to build a couple of tables. One of them holds bread that's literally baked every day for the presence of God. Not that God eats physical bread. It's representative, right? Another table that holds a lampstand with very special oil that is made that's only burned in the lamp in the religious tabernacle for the people. Um, oh, yeah, the lampstand. There's an altar, and then there's, like, a really big altar for animal sacrifice. God gives all these instructions because all of them are going to drive the religious worship that he requires for the people that's, and that sacrificial system for atonement that's going to be coming up here in the next little bit. Um, very detailed instructions, like I said, for special oil that is made in a certain way. It's got like spices and stuff in it that's only burned in that lampstand. That lampstand burns 24-7. Um, and then he also gives very detailed instructions for the high priest. So the high priest is going to be the representative of the people to the presence of God, which resides on the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. And the family of priests, so Aaron becomes the first high priest, Moses' brother, and then his family, the whole tribe of the Levites, is dedicated only to service to God in the tabernacle. And then later when Solomon builds the huge temple, the Levites are the drivers and the agents of ritual for all of the people as God establishes this system of worship. And he's establishing it right here at the base of Mount Sinai. So what's really cool about this is there's very, very detailed instructions about how to make all of these items out of gold and out of other types of metals. And the priests have to wear very, very specific clothing. Um, the, it involves um, jewelry work as well, so not just metal work, fine metal work. 
fine fabric work. Um, like these tents are made out of uh, very you know complicated um, types of fabric that are that are brought together. So there's there's really complicated aspects to this. Very fine gold and jewelry work that's being done, and God tells Moses to bring him two people, two men that are going to be his representatives for following these instructions to actually build all of this stuff the way that God says it has to be done and to the detail that God says it has to be done because this is God's house. This is the place of worship that God's establishing for hundreds of years. It's got to be done right, right? It's got to be done right, and God gives super detailed instructions. But what's cool about it is he brings these two guys and tells Moses to lay his hands on these two guys that are going to be sort of the artists of this whole project. And he says, I will give them the ability to follow my instructions. And I don't know about you guys, but I find that to be highly encouraging because there are times when God tells us to do things. There are times when God gives us instructions that we have to follow. And what I take from that story is that if we look at that and we're like, man, I don't know if I can do the level of gold and jewelry and cloth work and make this oil and make these tables exactly the way that they're supposed to and make the decorations of the tabernacle exactly the way they're supposed to. I don't know if I can do that. Whatever it is that God has called you to do in your life, he has also prepared you to do. And you receive the gifts that he has given you to meet the calling to follow the instructions that he's given you in your life. All right, so that's a little bit of a side note. Exodus chapter 28, they now begin uh, this section I called Dress the Priest. So again, those detailed instructions, the priests have to wear very specific articles of clothing. One of those um, is there is a requirement that at the base of their robe, so like uh, around the hem of their robe that touches the ground, they put little bells, little tinkly bells. Um, and I don't know about you guys, if you ever like um, are looking for your boss or nobody can find them, or you're looking for your wife in Target and it's crowded, and you're just like, ah, I wish somebody would put a bell around their neck. <laughs> then I could find them right away. So that's not exactly what's going on here. The bells actually have a little bit more sinister purpose, and that is that there's no chair. If you notice this, there's tables, there's altars, there's lampstands, but there's no chair in the tabernacle, and the priest is required to be on his feet serving uh, doing the, the altar rituals, the sacrifices, all this type of stuff. Um, and during the time when he goes into the most holy place, which we'll see a little bit more about how the tabernacle itself, how the place of worship is designed. But once a year, the priest, the high priest, goes into that most holy place where that Ark of the Covenant resides, and God's literal physical presence resides on the cherubim of atonement. Once a year, he goes in there to make sacrifice to atone for the sins of all the people. And because God's presence is so literal and so holy and so powerful in that place, it's quite possible that that person was going to die. And the high priest knew this, and it was a risk that they accepted in fulfilling the worship that is required for them. And so what would happen is that the like lower-level priests would be in the room next door, and if the tinkling of the bells ever stopped, they're like, well, we're just going to have to drag him out in a rope because he didn't make it. But that's just, that's a reminder of the holiness of God that resides in this place. 
It's that powerful that you could actually die. So when they dress the priest, he wears a very specific turban. He wears a very specific linen garments. He wears, this is where the jewelry comes in. He wears what's called an ephod or a, a breastplate, which is this decorative item that he holds that has 12 precious and semi-precious stones in it that represent the 12 tribes of Israel. God gives like all of these instructions about how exactly to make all of this stuff. He wears the tinkly bells on his hymn. And once the priest is dressed, so that is once God gives these instructions about how to dress the priest, at that time, the sacrificial system is instituted and the high priest begins to serve from that moment. That's the initiation of it that God sets in place. So when the priest is dressed, the ritual role for the high priest and for all the Levites to carry on the worship that God institutes at this time, the sacrifices that are required of the people, and that once a year sacrifice for atonement that's made for the entire community, it starts right then. And Aaron's the guy, Aaron's the high priest, and his sons begin to serve in the tabernacle, and the system of worship that is established at this time goes night and day, week in, week out, year in, year out, for like 650 years. They never stops. And they make sacrifices every day. They make sacrifices every week. They make sacrifices on the festivals. They make the yearly sacrifice for atonement once for all, like we talked about. Um, people could come at various times, present offerings. The priest would have to make those offerings and sacrifices for individual sacrifice or for individual or family level atonement for sins, right? But that, that uh, worship, that system of worship that's established at this time continues uninterrupted day and night until the people are taken into exile and the temple is destroyed by the Babylonians. God establishes it right here. How he initiates that system of worship and those requirements for the priest and for those people is by making four offerings. So this is the very first time that the priest is making these offerings, but like I said, it certainly won't be the last because it goes on for hundreds of years. But the way God initiates this and gives these instructions to begin the system of worship that he requires, again, in God's holiness, all of these items of the tabernacle, the lampstand and the altar and the tables and all this kind of stuff, all of this is consecrated, it's set aside for a single purpose, and that purpose is God's worship. That's what he demands. Likewise, he calls these people, the priests and their families, their sole purpose. They are consecrated. Consecrated means set apart, dedicated for a specific purpose. The priests are consecrated at this time for God's worship and to meet the worship that his holiness requires. So these four offerings that the high priest initiates the system of worship that would continue for 600 years uh, Exodus 29, uh, this is verse 1. Exodus 29 and verse 1. God says, now this is what you shall do to them to consecrate them. That is the priests and, and their families, the whole tribe of the Levites. This is what you shall do to consecrate them. Remember, that means set them aside, dedicated for that purpose of worship. That they may serve me as priests. Take one bull of the herd and two rams without blemish and unleavened bread unleavened cakes mixed with oil, and unleavened wafers smeared with oil. 
And this goes on in very, very detailed how you're going to offer that sacrifice, how the priests are going to offer that sacrifice. But just to give you an overview, here's what it looks like. So the bull is offered as a sin offering for all the people. This is the first offering of atonement for the entire community. This has never been done before. And so the high priest slaughters this bull and burns it on the altar in front of God after he and his sons have laid their hands on the animal and have literally committed the sins of all the people onto that animal, and then it's killed and sacrificed and becomes the atonement that God accepts for the sins of all the people. Because remember, God cannot exist in the presence of sin. He's so holy that he excludes any sin from his presence. So for the people to even come into the presence of God, that physical, literal presence for the first time at the tabernacle, atonement had to be made for their sins. So the priests lay their hands on that bull and then offer it before God. Next, they offer one of the rams. So this ram is called an appeasement offering. So on one hand, they say, we've atoned for all of the sins with the first sacrifice, and now we come before God in appeasing him. And this is not in the sense of, like, uh, you might think mythologically, or even like the worship of the surrounding nations around Israel, where they were very much into appeasement of the gods because they wanted their protection, they wanted to win in battle, they wanted their children to be healed, whatever, they felt like they had to appease the wrath of these random incited gods. And that's not the same concept, it's not the same picture that God is drawing here. So again, a way to differentiate between true worship, which he requires from his people, and what the surrounding peoples did in false worship of their gods. But in this appeasement, it's a way of bringing to God something that's important, something from yourself, and sacrificing in a way that says, we are humble before the very presence of the Almighty, and we want to appease you, God, by bringing to you this particular offering. And again, while the sacrificial system doesn't exist anymore, there's some of these principles that are still in place today. Because when you come before the presence of the Almighty, sometimes it's very easy um, to, you know, say, yeah, yeah, you know, God Almighty, the transcendent one, you know, whatever. But then we, what we'd rather sing is, you know, Jesus, my friend and savior. Um, and while both of those concepts exist at the same time, sometimes in our culture we forget the power and the holiness of the Almighty God. And it is wise for us in our worship to offer our hearts to God in a way that is reminding ourselves of his very transcendent nature. So while God is imminent to the world and he is genuinely interested and cares for each and every one of your daily lives and your kids and your job and the choices that you make, at the same time, it's sometimes wise to remind ourselves of his holiness, which is other than anything that we could ever approach or achieve or attain on our own in this life. So the second offering is they make an appeasement offering. Third, the high priest offers what's called an ordination offering. And this is where it's basically an offering and a ritual that states that Aaron and his sons and the priests and the Levites are ordained before God. They're consecrated. They're set apart to 
do the holy work of, they have to like go through all these purification rituals. Every day they would have to do this. Um, but this particular offering is what establishes the priests and their, um, their action as intermediaries for the people before God. So the third offering is an ordination offering. And then fi the final offering, and that's the one that it talks about, the unleavened bread, the unleavened cakes, oil. Basically, it's called a wave offering or an offering of presentation. And this is where they take some of those first fruits of the land and they remind themselves of where they stand in terms of recipients of God's provision and God's providence by offering those and waving them before the Lord to say, reminder people, this is where it comes from. We're giving back to God some of what he's given us. That goes back to what Carol was talking about. God has provided for each and every one of us, and we give back to God and to God's community through our tithes and offerings, and in other ways, through prayer, through ministry to other people, right? But particularly, we're reminded of it by an agrarian society offers back to God the grains and the breads that they've produced. In our society, we offer back to God what he has provided to us, and that's in the form of bringing back to his community the provision that that community needs. So all of these are reminders to the people of the establishment of worship, the establishment of the Levites, the consecration, and the dedication of all of these implements of worship that they've made now for the tabernacle, and then the fact that they're reminding themselves of God's provision by offering back to him the loaf and the bread. Um, and that also becomes part of the feasts. The feasts are also designed to remind the people of God's providence and God's provision in that way. And that becomes throughout the calendar year, repetition of worship that reminds the people of that in every way. So the high priest is ordained, is set aside, is dedicated to the worship that God requires in building the tabernacle. And I can't remember what slide we're on, but I have a picture of the tabernacle, or at least of like um, a representation. We don't know exactly what it looked like because they didn't have Polaroids back then, um, but just based on the really, really detailed dimensions and description of what the tabernacle um, was designed to do, this is a, a representation. So I'm not sure how well you guys can see that, but basically there's like an outer courtyard that, ha that has like tall um, curtains, basically. So not, not the entire community, not the entire nation could fit in there by any means. But it was designed for representatives of the people to be able to come in through sort of those curtains into the outer courtyard. Um, and there's places to, to sit and whatnot out there. And then there's the, like the huge altar where large animals like bulls and stuff were sacrificed and people could observe that aspect of the ritual. And then inside the tent, this is a much smaller space, only the priests can go in there. So like Joe Schmo, Nate Amerson, we can't go in that area. That's only for the priests. And again, that's where the lampstand and the holy bread and the consecrated items are for um, the, the priestly worship. And then within the tent is a much smaller tent that's got like a very thick dividing curtain from the rest of the space. And that's called the holiest place. The holiest place. And the holiest place is where the Ark of the Covenant resided, where those cherubim are and where God's literal physical presence would actually reside for the people was inside that holiest place. And inside that holiest place is what we talked about with the high priest, 
would only go in one time a year, and that's where the offering of atonement was made for the entire community to be essentially freed and, and cleared from the sins that they had committed over the year. One time a year, the priest would go into the holiest place and do that. So this was just to give you like a little bit of a visual representation of everything, all the instructions that God has brought together in building the tabernacle, the separated areas, uh, the, how the altar was to be constructed, the furniture, and this is where the Levites and the priest would spend all of their time in ministry before God. And so the important thing about all of this is not necessarily all the laws, because Anthony did a really good job explaining how we're not under that same system. We're not under the same sacrificial system that God establishes at this time. We don't anymore have to bring an animal to sacrifice and the priests have to do their ritual and sacrifice that animal before God. We don't have to do that anymore. God doesn't require that anymore. And the reason that he does not is because there is another high priest. So another high priest has been established by God. And here we read in the book of Hebrews, chapter 3 and verse 1. Hebrews 3 and verse 1. And so, dear brothers and sisters who belong to God and are partners with those called to heaven, think carefully about this Jesus, who we declare to be God's messenger and high priest. For he was faithful to God who appointed him, just as Moses served faithfully when he was entrusted with God's entire house, the tabernacle. But Jesus deserves far more glory than Moses, just as a person who builds a house deserves more praise than the house itself. For every house has its builder, but the one who built everything is God. And so we see that with the establishment of a new covenant, the requirements of the old covenant are not in place anymore. Anthony talked about how there's different requirements, right? No longer do we have to appeal to giant blocks of stone that are written in the very hand of God to know his laws, but now his laws are written on our hearts, and a much closer relationship is required because God's presence no longer dwells in a single place in the entire country. It doesn't sit on the cherubim anymore, for his presence resides in our hearts, and that's why his law has to be there as well, because guess what went inside the box? What went inside the ark was those stone tablets. They went in there along with representations of God's miracles and provision and delivery for the people, they went in the box. But God's presence is now in our hearts. The Holy Spirit has been given us as a personal friend and comforter and advice giver who helps us live, who helps us be consecrated, dedicated, committed to holy worship of God himself and lives with us daily, and more importantly, God has written his laws on our heart. And so now there's no longer a mediator is required to physically sacrifice animals to allow God's wrath against sin to be appeased and to bring atonement for the people. That is no longer required, but the high priest is still in place, a greater high priest, and that's Jesus Christ himself, 
because of the work that he did to establish the new covenant that God has now enacted in our hearts and in our lives. So the worship is still a requirement. The way it looks and the sacrifice and the animals and the burnt offering and all that is not necessarily the requirement. But the worship is still a requirement and the high priest is still our intermediary before the very presence of God. He brings us into that presence, the new high priest, Jesus Christ himself. We'll go back to Hebrews 1 and verse 1. Hebrews 1 and verse 1, the opening verses here of the book of Hebrews. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. After making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Notice what's going on here. The high priest of the Old Covenant, the high priest of the Old Testament, was unable to sit down because he had to be on his feet before the very presence of God. But this high priest is God himself, is God's son. He is the imprint of his nature and the radiance of God himself. And this high priest is far superior to the high priest that came before. And he is able to do what those high priests were unable to do, and that is to sit down in the very presence of God. This high priest is far superior because he himself has accomplished the work that the high priests were representing for hundreds of years in the past. And he can sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The reason that he's able to do that is not just because he's appointed as the high priest, not just because he has initiated the worship that God requires of us in this day, but because he himself is the sacrifice. No animals are required anymore because Christ himself has taken upon himself that responsibility. Remember how the priests laid their hands on the head of the bull and they enacted all of the sin of the community in one act and placed it on that animal and then had to sacrifice it as receiving atonement for all of those sins. Christ himself, by spreading his arms, by choosing to go to the cross, became that sacrifice one time, one time for all time, placed upon himself the sins of the whole world, past and future for all time. Romans 3, verse 23. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned 
in times past. So Jesus in one act took upon himself the provision for the atonement. And that goes back into the past and covers all of those sins that people committed up to that time. And it goes forward into eternity to the moment that we find ourselves in the very presence of God. And atonement for our sin is no longer required. And more importantly, the blood sacrifice is no longer required. The sacrifice of animals is no longer required. Again, in the book of Romans, we find Paul is describing the reason for this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So not only was there one sacrifice for atonement for sin that allows us all to come into the presence of God, but now the requirement is not just that the spirit is in our hearts and the law is in our hearts, but that we are required to offer ourselves continuously to God as a sacrifice. And when we do, and when we accept the final sacrifice that was made for the atonement of all of our sins, then, then we are able to come into the glorious presence of Almighty God. And there will be a time when this will be our permanent state. And no longer will any sacrifice or any atonement be required because we will have been consecrated permanently and completely to the worship of God and to abide in his holy presence we will be allowed to do that on a permanent basis because at the end of all things, God will do away with all requirements for sin because sin itself will be no more. And I told you that we started with feasts and we're gonna come back to feasts. And here at the end of all things, when all people and the whole earth has been consecrated and dedicated to the holy worship of God, there's another feast. And this is the feast, the greatest feast, at the end of all things, because we are able to be in the presence of God permanently. In Revelation 19, John is describing in a vision, the best he can, things that have never been seen or described before. He says, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is the final feast because we can now be in God's presence forever without any atonement having to be made for sin because our very spirits will be consecrated to him and to that eternal worship. And the final feast will be a marriage feast. And that's when Christ's bride, which is now us, you and I and everyone here, the church in the world today is Christ's bride that he is making holy and consecrated for himself 
so that we can spend all of eternity together with him. As we transition back into worship with a final song, a very fitting song that reminds us of the reason that we're able to stand here in God's presence, I just ask you to think about how you can sacrifice yourself. What do you need to sacrifice? How can you bring yourself before God in a way that is going to not just invite his presence, but present yourselves in a holy way before him because that is how we are called to live. No longer having to go through daily ritual and purification and sacrifice for atonement because atonement has been made once and for all. But how can we present ourselves before him in a consecrated manner? Because now we become those implements of worship and we have to be set aside, we have to be dedicated to him to his holiness, and to fulfilling his presence in the world. <laughs> Father God, we're so grateful for the time that we have today. Reminders of the past, reminders of the requirements that you've set in place, Lord, at different times for different people. And more importantly, we're incredibly grateful that we no longer have to live underneath that set of rules, but that you haven't acted one time for all time, for all people, one act of atonement, Lord Jesus, in sacrificing yourself and offering yourself, you fulfilled that requirement for all of us and for all time. Lord, we love you. And just speak to us this week about how we can live in a holy way, consecrated to you, not that we're necessarily able to because we're human, we're still gonna sin, we're gonna fail, we're gonna fall, but we can always reach back out to you knowing that your forgiveness is present for every single one of those transactions. Lord, help us to live for you throughout this week, consecrated, dedicated, and standing before the holy, almighty God. <laughs>